Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table. This is a podcast that brings to the table legal and policy professionals for a lively and intellectual discussion that amplifies voices that are often unheard. I'm Juliette Kayyem, faculty chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I'm a former assistant secretary at DHS and a national security analyst for CNN. I'm Ann Milgram, professor of practice and distinguished scholar at NYU School of Law and former New Jersey attorney general. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, and I'm Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network there and a legal contributor for MSNBC. So today we're really excited to be joined by Ann O'Leary, Chief of Staff to Governor Gavin Newsom and co-chair of Newsom's eight-month task force on business and jobs recovery. Ann was also a senior policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and co-executive director of the Clinton-Kane Transition Project. We're going to be talking to Ann specifically about COVID and California's response to the pandemic, and this couldn't be coming at a better time. Lots of news on the COVID front, and it's always helpful in the middle of a really hard time to look to the light. We are getting good news, not just on the science side of the vaccine, but in England today, their equivalent FDA approved emergency authorization. So that vaccine is going to start to move and we will see similar here in the United States. So the way to think about 2021 is a split screen. We are entering a horrible winter. Every number, every model tells us that we are probably not mentally, personally, or nationally prepared for what's about to happen. But we also see some good news, which is what we might call a rolling recovery through the United States. It won't happen in a single moment, but certainly over the first quarter, second quarter, and probably into the third quarter, everyone from healthcare workers at the front of the line to essential workers right after them, to people with preconditions, to the general public, will have a shot in the arm. It's going to be messy and complicated and bulky, but it will happen. Maybe two shots. Two shots, but it will happen. But we got to get there. And that's the hard part right now. We are entering a winter of much sadness. And one of the reasons for that sadness, I think, is a Supreme Court decision that one needs help understanding that limited governor's authorities to control the pandemic. And I wonder, Melissa, someone who studies the court and knows this area really well, if you could just you know, to walk us through what happened, because it seems really, <laughs> really hard. Well, it's definitely a consequential decision. And so the case concerned a series of rules imposed by executive order by Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, and it restricted attendance at a number of different venues. And so in red zones, and again, these zones are dependent on what the status of virus transmission is in the community. But if you are in the red zone, meaning virus transmission is is quite high, then attendance at these particular venues is capped at 10 people. If you are in the orange zone, so still elevated, but not quite as risky as in red, attendance is then capped at 25. What was really interesting in this particular case is that In this particular circumstance, neither of the religious institutions that were challenging this executive order were actually at red or orange. They were actually at a much lower level because virus transmission hadn't become that difficult. So for those who are lawyers, that means that this issue isn't necessarily ripe for review. Like There's not an issue because we're not in the red or orange zone and these restrictions aren't in place against these religious institutions. In any event, the court nonetheless chose to take up the merits of this particular question, whether or not the executive order violated the free exercise rights of the religious institutions and their membership. This was really interesting because 
Nothing has really changed at the Supreme Court since the spring when the court upheld governor's orders also limiting attendance at particular gatherings in places like California and Nevada. The only thing that has really changed is that the pandemic has become more virulent and the composition of the Supreme Court has changed substantially with the addition of a sixth conservative justice. With that sixth conservative justice, we saw the chief justice really in retreat. So in the past, in those earlier cases from California and Nevada, we had the chief justice really taking a more deferential posture to science and to the legislature or executive's ability to parse the science and make recommendations for their communities. Here, we saw a really bold and conservative majority comparing what they viewed as an apples to apples comparison. We have other businesses being allowed to open and have individuals come through, but we are singling out, in their view, religious institutions for this harsher treatment. And there was a dissent from Chief Justice John Roberts that noted that the case wasn't necessarily timely because the restrictions weren't in place. There's another dissent from Justice Stephen Breyer who really focused on the science of it, lots of empirical evidence noting that in these particular situations where the restrictions were most restrictive, there's a higher rate of likelihood of virus transmission. Places where people are in close proximity to one another, singing, chanting, or whatnot, they're more likely to spread the virus. And then there was a stinging dissent from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, also joined by Justice Elena Kagan, that noted that in fact, religious institutions had not been singled out for harsh treatment because in fact, the executive order applied to any institution or venue where this kind of activity, people in close proximity, chanting, singing, would be taking place. So it not just singled, it wasn't just for religious institutions, but also for lecture halls or concert venues and things like that. So she really made the case that this wasn't an apples to apples comparison. It was actually an apples to oranges because the businesses that were allowed to stay open did not have people interacting in the same ways as that which was restricted by the executive order. So that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of it. It's a highly consequential decision because I think it does make it harder for state level restrictions to be imposed and to be upheld by the lower federal courts and the Supreme Court in the future. I was really surprised. I mean, my vantage point on this is is thinking about as a state official. I mean, there were times where the governor made emergency declarations and had, in my view, vast powers to limit people's ability to do things based on that emergency declaration. And one of the questions I sort of had in thinking about the governor's regulations was that they were done pretty early. The science is obvious. Like We know a lot more about the science now. And I don't know. I haven't reviewed them closely enough to know, did they really go into the science of sitting in in an hour at a religious service, singing and chanting like you're talking about? I guess so my question is, in practice, I found this decision to be really troubling because I think in a public health emergency, the governor needs to be able to have vast authority. But I did also wonder in practice, if Cuomo goes back in New York or in other states, if they go back and they do more detailed findings of facts around the sort of medical evidence and data, if they couldn't (laughs) sustain this. Because again, I think you're right in saying that the court was equating that it shouldn't have equated. But I guess my question is, can that be cured through more work around the EO, the the executive order that gets done around the emergency? So, So that's an open question, I think. And we're going to hear more about that. I think there's currently pending before the court a petition to hear a case coming out of Kentucky. And there, Governor Bashir basically closed all of the schools 
in the state. And now there is another free exercise challenge arguing that religious schools should be allowed to open. And so I think this is really going to test the logic of the rule that a law of general applicability that is neutrally applied to all comers basically should be deferred to as an exercise of the legislature's authority to make laws for the general welfare. So, so we'll find out um, if there, if more evidence, um, you know, more careful consideration of the science would make a difference. But I I think one of the things you have to really understand here that the logic of these decisions are equating so-called essential businesses, like whether it's grocery stores or transportation hubs or whatnot with religion. And, And this is not to degrade religion at all. You know, I go to church every weekend, although now I go on Zoom. But the argument is that if going to the grocery store is essential for many people, faith is also essential and they should be open in equal measure. Melissa and Ann, I wanted to ask though, I mean, just from the curious, if I look at this to the operation side, so we're going to have a transition on January 20th and there'll be drama because there always has to be drama. But I mean, when people ask me about the new national security team and the Homeland Security team, I say, I I say, The only way you could call them boring is because we have been watching essentially the Real Housewives of the Situation Room for the last four years. Like, I mean, you know, it's like literally like... One of my colleagues called it an Ikea-level cabinet. Yeah, exactly. I I said to someone, I mean, we're all going to be engaged and in the ways that we are engaged and commenting and stuff. But I, for the first time, I also feel like I have the luxury to look away. I don't mean that like ending commitment or the work that I'm doing or all of you are doing. It's just more, we're like passing a fire on the highway and slowing down. When you think about this transition, not just related to COVID, but also in, in, in spaces that you follow, the courts, law, state law, COVID, women, it sounds mean to say, I, I feel like I have the luxury to look away, but that's actually a compliment, which is adults are in charge, let them do their jobs and I'll do mine, right? As compared to what's been going on the last four years. I was just curious your thoughts in the spaces you're looking at. I mean, I've just been struck by how professional, like what level of expertise the people who've been nominated have, like that they're all people who've worked in their fields for a long period of time. They bring a lot of professionalism and expertise. I think you said it well, and you have the luxury now that you could look away if you wanted to. I just sort of, after the first round of appointments, I felt a little bit lighter. Yeah, I felt I felt a sense of security and safety that, and I think it's really important to say, like I've worked in state, local, and federal government, and people make mistakes all the time. But my sense is with these folks, they're are always going to be driven by doing what's right and and doing it for the right reasons. And that's really what you want your government to do. Nothing is perfect. No one is perfect. But you want that assurance that they're going to wake up and go to work and they're going to try to do their best for the American public. And it really did make me feel a level of comfort that they have such depth of experience, professional experience, and that they seem just all of them seem really accomplished and qualified. I'll offer a gloss on what you said. I mean, it's, it's not just that they are professionals, like they're professionals at government. And I think that was something that was perhaps missing from the last four years. Like there were professional people. They may have come from the corporate side of things. They really didn't have a lot of experience in government. And this is a point of tension, I think, with the real progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, there's a sense like we need to shake things up. And I totally hear that. But I also think that after the last four years, there's kind of a need to sort of maybe also return to the kind of stabilizing presence of people who 
know how the government is supposed to work and, and are willing to observe, even if it's not expeditious, even if it doesn't yield the outcomes they necessarily want or, or on the time frame that they want, but they will nonetheless adhere to those time-tested processes. I think that's right. And I think when you think about this first year, so we're going to have the issue of the courts and how conservative they've gotten and whether they stop some of a legislative agenda. But in immigration in particular, most of the work is going to be an undoing. I mean, it's just going to be the unraveling of an apparatus that should have never existed. And that, that doesn't take vision. That takes knowing how to make government work. It's, it's literally like the bureaucratic undoing of bad policy, the, the building of new one. Well, to link this up to the COVID decision, I mean, thinking about a policy, an immigration policy that was really eyebrow raising the travel ban where the Supreme Court offered incredible deference to the administration, even in the face of prior statements that suggested that the travel ban was animated by, at least in part, by some kind of hostility toward Muslims, but there was incredible deference from the court on that. So to Anne's point, I, I think there maybe there's some selective deference going on in, in some of these kinds of orders. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think we should also look for in addition to immigration is that one of the things that the Trump administration has done is they have undone a lot of existing regulations and rules in the executive agencies. And I think we don't focus on it as much because it's not front page news, but we largely live in a regulatory state. We can't have a law for everything. And so we give the power to these executive institutions, whether it's health and human services or education, we give them enormous power to make these rules and regulations by which the departments carry out their mandates. And the administration, where where they've made rules and regulations, they've been challenged in court and they've frequently lost because they didn't follow the correct procedures. And so people have focused on that. I don't think we've focused enough on how many existing rules and regs they have undone. And so I think the first year is going to be about it really is. Immigration is not the only space where this is going to exist. It's going to be about what do we think the existing rules and regulations should be? Do we have to pass, implement new ones or do we have to undo other things? And it's going to be a huge amount of work for at least the first year, if not longer. It may also be uneven. I mean, you saw at least at the beginning of the last administration, some of the blue states, for example, codifying into their own state laws or in their own state administrative regulations, things that were being undone by the Trump administration. So that certainly happened with climate regulation in California. Didn't happen everywhere. So, I mean, again, we now kind of have this patchwork quilt of regulation across the country at the state level that's meant to either mimic the older regulations or adhere to the new Trump administration regulations. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think when it comes to COVID, this transition is going to be interesting because, and you see it with sort of President Trump's ego, I'll give credit where credit's due, you know, Operation Warp Speed, man. Operation Warp Speed was to put money into the development of a vaccine. But now this next phase is going to be all the stuff that the Trump administration is not very good at, which is just details and logistics. And so one of the things I look at at this transition is there's a handoff in the middle of the sprint. Not even, I mean, this is, this is at the moment that we're at. If anything worries me, it's just sort of how much Trump is going to want to burn the place down on the way out. Right. I mean, in other words, he's just not, he's not interested. I think the best we could hope of President Trump 
the best, which I'm not convinced is going to happen because he's doing all sorts of stuff, is he just goes off to play golf one day and then just never returns. Like that would be the best transition at this stage. Like, you know, just just go and and we'll figure it out as the new team comes on board because that too is going to have different impact in each of the states, just like the legal regimes that we're talking about. Yeah, I've been thinking about it as like a complex relay race. Yeah. Right? You're, there's like one team sort of starting running, but they're not going to have gone very far. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have a whole new team come in. I personally was really happy to see that the transition was allowed to start and work with yeah. the existing folks because there's nothing worse than just the Biden folks were just operating with no information. That felt so dangerous to me. Juliet, what else are you thinking about like the sort of homeland security, national security transition? I'm thrilled with each of the choices. There's clearly dramas going on, or I think that's sort of a nice way to put it. I don't, you know, I, I, I read political like everyone else. Some major decisions have still not been made. Defense Department, CIA, and Justice Department. I think it's more important that he get his health team in, which apparently is going to happen in the next few days, HHS and CDC, because you just got to get people who know government, people who have expertise, and people that can hit the ground running. So the fact that a lot of these people were at one level before and then now are just one higher is actually good because they know the agencies that they're working in. Look, COVID, COVID, COVID. Like, I mean, in other words, if you ask me what are the top five national security issues right now, it's those, right? But we also are going to get into a steady state once we get through this horrible winter. By February, March, we'll be in a steady state, knock on wood, of just manufacturing distribution last mile. That's just the way it's going to work. And then immigration and then, of course, on the national security front, I just think uh, climate change, we're just, we just got to play again, whether it's on the defense side and get ready for a hurricane season, it's going to be like this one or rejoining the Paris agreement. There'll be other issues like Iran and, and Russia, but maybe I'm uh, sort of not a big thinker in this sense, but it's, it's America's capacity to assert strength is tied to our response to COVID and we need to get it right. So mic drop from Julia. Hi, this is Jennifer, the producer of Women at the Table. Today's broad topic is on the impact of the Spanish flu on the women's suffrage movement. The Spanish flu outbreak started in the spring of 1918, when there was momentum growing for women's suffrage. While legislation in different states had enabled women to vote in some local elections, the 19th Amendment had not yet been ratified. The amendment had, in fact, just been defeated in the Senate. Then, shortly after that vote, almost all legislative action came to a halt, as many lawmakers fell ill. But this would be just one blow the suffragists would encounter. Women's suffrage groups have been prepared to congregate. They had hoped to get the word out about the November midterms, as they were hoping to oust the senators who had rejected the amendment. But because of the flu, protests and public gatherings were shut down. Meanwhile, vocal women's suffrage leaders like Carrie Chapman Catt president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, became sick with the flu and were bedridden. As the flu surged on and the war continued, the urge for nurses became so great that many women who had supported the movement left to tend to the ill. Suffragists did what they could to campaign in a socially distant manner, wearing masks, taking ads out in the newspaper, signing petitions, sending letters, and making calls. But their momentum was slowed. The flu also suppressed voter turnout. In November of 1918, there were 3 million fewer ballots cast than in the 1914 midterms. But in some ways, women's important role as caregivers during the war, and now the pandemic, ended up helping them. In Michigan, South Dakota, and Oklahoma, suffrage referendums passed, in large part due to the respect and positive feelings women had generated. In fact, Louisiana was the only referendum to have failed. 
Eventually, in June 1919, Senate passed the women's suffrage bill, and the suffragists would fight hard for ratification in the necessary 36 states for the next 15 months. In February 1920, Elosius Larch Miller, who was sick with the flu, testified before the Oklahoma Democratic Party Convention on behalf of ratification. While she won the argument, she died of pneumonia shortly after. Finally, on August 26, 2020, when Tennessee ratified the amendment, women's suffrage was inscribed into the U.S. Constitution. Okay, great, Jennifer. I hope you enjoyed learning about the Spanish flu's impact on the women's suffrage movement. So we're absolutely thrilled because Anne is now here to join us and to talk a little bit about the work she's doing for the governor in California and with COVID and the recovery that we might be able to see sometime in 2021. So Anne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Anne, let's get right into it. Juliet just mentioned that for a big part of your career, you worked closely with Hillary Clinton. And in the last election in 2016, you were actually one of Hillary's sort of top three people on domestic policy issues. So in a way, what we're seeing in California the seeds of that were in the Clinton campaign's policy response to the prospect of a potential pandemic. So you're actually getting a chance to play that out only on a state level here in California, although California is an enormous state. What are some of the challenges around this whole issue of containing a vast public health crisis of the sort that we've seen over the course of the last nine months? And what are the biggest challenges looking forward toward a recovery and transitioning back to what we hope will be ordinary times? Well, let me take the first challenging issue. And we have, I would say two things. One is that the state of California had been doing planning around a global pandemic. It had experienced H1N1. When I worked for Hillary Clinton on the 2016 campaign, you'll remember we were dealing with the Zika virus. And so we had expected that that could have become a major problem and we're planning for that. But I think in terms of what actually hit us, I don't think we were quite prepared for the real challenges. And let me just name a few of them. So in California, we actually got lucky in one sense to prepare early, which is that in January, we were contacted by the federal government and asked to begin to work with the federal government on the repatriation flights. For, so people who were in China, U.S. citizens, permanent residents who needed to come back to the United States. And so we early on began accepting people into California from China who were in Wuhan and the other areas. So we worked really closely with our local public health um, officials as we in those regions that we're accepting the flights into our Air Force bases. So we um, did a lot of early preparatory work. But I think it ended up having kind of a false sense of security about what was going to happen with the federal government. And I'll just name a few of the early challenges. Some of them are very well known, but I think it's important for people to understand them. So the first challenge was just the logistics, which is we thought that the federal government would be providing tests to us that we could begin to test people. Well, as we began to receive them, it was clear that not all of the testing equipment were available to us. And so we'd get partial testing equipment and not be able to actually use it. We didn't have ability to actually use labs and test people in, in, in a way. So we we relied on the idea that CDC would be something we could rely on. And so we weren't doing planning on the state side because we thought the CDC would be providing that and they weren't. And so part of it was then we had to quickly figure out how we were going to do that as a state. On, on the personalized protective equipment, the PPE, 
the supply chain was so bad that states were really kind of in a hunger games, a global hunger games of trying to figure out how we could get it. Now, of course, California has a global market power that is greater than most states in the United States. So we were able to actually create our own PPE pipeline. We worked with a company that had a California base and a China base that allowed us to actually begin manufacturing PPE in a major way. But most states didn't have that. And so these were some real logistical challenges that you should have had a federal role. But the biggest challenge by far was the incredible disinformation campaign that was by the president of the United States about face masks. And I think it can't be understated that that literally killed people. It made it so that when we came out with our face mask mandate, that people basically said, no, the president's telling me it's not going to work. I won't do it. They were protesting us at the Capitol saying no. And now even on Fox News just last night, I heard finally they admitted that, you know, there's this a study that shows that face masks work. Well, actually they do work. And so I think that it can't be understated just how challenging. And of course, we worked really closely with the Trump White House. And the one time I just completely lost my cool at them was over the issue of the disinformation campaign that they were running by the president of the United States. And it was actually disinformation because we know from that Bob Woodward interview that the president understood the science around face masks earlier than he actually admitted to to the general public. So it actually was active disinformation. That's absolutely right. You know, and I think that you think about malinformation that is sometimes covert and is happening on our social media accounts. This was this was actually intentional misinformation by the president of the United States so that it made it so that the governors who were acting with health and science-based approach were actually fighting against the president of the United States and fighting the communications war that made it really hard for compliance to happen. And that was one of the biggest challenges that we are still still you know suffering from. Well, I mean, we're entering the, the winter of discontent. Maybe in California, it'll, it'll be a little bit easier than where I am, say, for example, Massachusetts, but not likely so. And I want to fast forward. Let's do a little good news, which is, of course, the vaccine news. I think it'd be really helpful for people to hear how the heck is this going to work? Like, okay, so like the scientists got the vaccine, the smart people did that, right. but you now need to get it into people's arms. And I, I, I would love to hear just sort of how, how is that working? We're talking to you. I should tell the listeners, we're talking to Anne the day after the CDC made its first priority listing. So now the states have at least some sense of how to move forward. Right. So there's a couple of great things. Obviously, Pfizer made the big news in terms of UK today. The CDC came out with their priority listing. But also, we're sitting here. I'm in California, in Sacramento. I'm in the state capital at the very moment. And we had over 20,000 cases in one day alone in California yesterday, Mm -hmm. the largest number ever. And so in some sense, it is fabulous news. It's also feels a long time coming. And so what I will say is that in California, we've been preparing for quite some time. In fact, five states, the United States were picked to work with USHHS to develop the model for how we're going to develop a vaccine distribution plan. So we've been doing this since the summer of this year. We're very well prepared. We're working with our providers. We've been really trying to actually take this vaccine flu season to make sure that we can really push out flu vaccines and we can, in some sense, stress test how we do when we do vaccines. We usually get about 50% of people in our best times taking the vaccine. And so we're really working on all the distribution issues, but we're worried about 
about the same things that happen with regard to the testing components. Are we going to have pipeline problems? How are we going to get this if we do? How are we going to distribute it in a way that's fair and equitable? How quickly can we do this? So we are working really intently and intensely on this, and it's going to you know continue to take work. What do you think, Anne? I mean, I, I know it's probably impossible to really estimate timing, but it would be helpful to get your sense of like, you think 50% or 100% of Californians will have access to a vaccine by by when? By November of next year, I'd say. Okay. I mean, you know, like the, the head of Operation Warp Speed said May. I think that's completely unrealistic. I mean, given what we know, I think it's possible just in terms of the priorities. So you think, can we get our frontline healthcare workers? Can we get our nursing home residents? How quickly can that happen? I think that by the spring of next year, we'll really be able to penetrate all of our frontline health workers, our nursing homes. But in terms of people who are generally healthy population families, I think it's going to be the fall of next year. And so I think that's, that's what I think is probably most realistic by the end of next year. And how are you going to, I mean, one of the challenges and talking about disinformation that I think governors and mayors and and now with the Biden presidency is going to face is the contradictory split screen messaging. At the one hand, you need to overcome vaccine hesitancy. And there hasn't been good polling since Biden won. So we don't know if that polling, which shows a lot of reluctancy, will shift. But at the same time, you have to tell people to wait. So it's sort of a hurry up and wait messaging. Have you thought about how you're going to guide people through, there's going to be those clamoring to get in and those who you're going to have to drag in. And I'm just sort of curious how you're thinking about that disinformation campaign. One of the interesting things is prior to COVID-19, last year in 2019, the biggest protests we had in California were by anti-vaxxers. Yeah. And it was related to how we were in California trying to make sure that children could receive vaccination. We could have herd immunity among children for their normal well-child immunizations. I've never seen anything so intense. I you know, have a parking spot here in the Capitol that I drive into. I would drive in and people would pound on my car protesting and beating. And I, in all my years of politics, I'd never seen that level of intensity. So we're going to couple this with the Trumpian disinformation that had already gone on, the anti-vaccine disinformation, and then this. And so what the reason I say that is that, you know, obviously the logistics concerns are big and, and we will continue to work on logistics. I actually feel like civil servants in the federal government and the state government do a great job of logistics. I think that what we really need and we have not had at the national level, we've never had a national face wearing campaign, a face mask wearing campaign. We have not had a national, obviously, vaccine campaign. We really need to have the CDC and USHHS running a massive public awareness and education campaign. We do not have enough resources to do it in the state of California by ourselves. And so if we can do it and really penetrate, it will be wonderful to have a leader, a president of the United States, who's also using everything in his bully pulpit to send the right messages. So I feel like that will be critical to getting this to work. You know, and one of the things I was thinking about, I was a state AG, and there were a lot of things in which we wanted to do our own thing as a state. It's a really interesting thing when you sit in a state versus when you sit at, I was at DOJ before that, when you sit in the federal government, you have a different perspective. But this has felt to me like, and, and you just touched on it, this has just felt to me like one of those things that is virtually impossible for states to do on their own for a variety of reasons. And I guess if you could write your wish list for the Biden team, I mean, you just did one thing, which is a public awareness campaign around vaccines. I think probably either a mandate or awareness around masks feels to me like it's still important. Like what else is on is on that list? President Biden on day one for the state of California, we need you to do. What are your top three priorities? Yeah, so really it is the certainty on public messaging. It's also the certainty on how we're thinking about economic recovery. So let me give you another concrete example. 
in March, we, of course, did the first, we were first in the United States to do a stay-at-home order. And then in May and June, we began to reopen. As we did, the CDC started developing sectoral guidance about how you could safely reopen. The White House stopped them from putting it out, you might remember. So what that meant is that we in California had to write all of our own sectoral guidance. Every single economic sector in California, how would you open? How can you do it safely? And so we did the best we could. We learned a lot from science since then. We did a lot of re-ups and re-changes, and we did a new blueprint in August. This stress and strain, we actually started at what we call a Western States PAC. So every week I'm talking to the chiefs of staff in Washington and Oregon and in Mexico and Colorado and Nevada, and we're really just trying to iterate with each other. Well, can you imagine how wonderful it will be to have a, have a federal government who can give us some direction about the economic recovery component of this? We are not going to really have a fully penetrating vaccine until the end of 2021. We cannot have our entire economy shut down for an entire year. We can't have our schools shut down for an entire year. And so I think that what I most hope for from the Biden team is that they're giving us very clear guidance that can be nationally implemented. One of the things we do in California, as many states, you know, with good practices around emergency management do, is we have what we call a unified command group. So we have federal individuals as well as states coming together every day, iterating together. And we do very well on logistics. I think it would be one Wonderful also to have the federal government help us on the economic recovery piece of that. So, you know, we really have to be really smart about how we're doing this, keeping people open, stimulating the economy, being smart about economic opportunities. So those are some of the ideas I'm hopeful for could come from federal assistance with the Biden team. So right now in California, and I think a lot of us are on tenterhooks waiting for the governor to issue a second shelter in place order. And so the first order that came in March, I, th- I think, was better received because it was early on in the pandemic. And there also seemed to be the prospect of some kind of federal aid, which ultimately did come, which made it, I think, a little bit less of an economic hit for people to be told to stay at home and to remain at home. Now it seems it's less likely, maybe there will be some movement at the federal level, but it seems less likely that a huge influx of aid will come to those who need it right now in order to shelter in place appropriately. And there's real fear that another lockdown order will send the state into an economic collapse. So there's all of that. There's also, I think, some blowback on the governor because the shelter in place order is coming in the face of the revelation that he attended this lunch or dinner at the French Laundry. And so people are sort of suggesting that it's a kind of stay at home for thee, but not for me. And how are you going to deal with all of these competing concerns um, that are they're true and real concerns among many Californians right now? And I think it is an issue that a lot of governor's offices are taking on right now. Yeah, so you just outlined, you know, the every moment of my waking hour for the last uh, several days. So let me just... Um, you are seen here, and I see you. I see you. So let me name four problems that we're experiencing and how we're going to reconcile them. I think the first one is the most important that you didn't mention, but it's at the forefront, which is we are reaching, um, we're getting close to our capacity in our ICUs. And you're seeing it, obviously, you probably saw St. Louis, Missouri this morning, just, you know, I think they're at 90%. We're at 75% ICU capacity in the state of California. When we reach 80%, we really, for the sake of being able to actually provide healthcare, not just for people who have COVID, but for people who show up at our emergency rooms, who show up at our hospitals, who need care, 
we have to take some drastic measures to control this virus again. As I said, we had over 20,000 cases in one day alone yesterday in the state of California. Uh, We have more people in the hospital, more people in ICUs than we've ever had during this entire virus. And so it's a very, very real issue. However, as you say, there's really three challenges. One is there's a leadership challenge, which is people are angry at this governor. They're angry at our mayors who weren't complying with their orders. They're angry at other elected officials. And they do feel like, listen, you're asking me to do things and you're not making sacrifices. The governor, of course, apologized. He's currently in quarantine with his family. He is dealing with this in real time. But that is something that we are very aware of. The third thing is what happened at the U.S. Supreme Court several days ago. It cannot be taken lightly that this order that they, if you read it carefully, it's not just about churches. Of course, it is about churches, but there is a lot of language in there about not being arbitrary about how you do these stay-at-home orders and being very careful. We've learned a lot about the health and science, and we do think we can keep more things open, but that is a real issue that we're struggling with. And then the fourth issue that you alluded to is that I don't have a lot of confidence that Congress is going to act in the next two weeks. I mean, maybe this piece will come together, but if they don't act, that means there's no UI, there's no extended UI, there's no eviction relief. And so we would be saying to people, you're literally making choices between things that we think are potentially deadly, meaning going out, you know, exposing yourself, and not having literally any food on the table or any ability to pay your rent. And so these are issues that keep us up at night, that we're working hard. The governor has decided not to do a press conference today because we really needed another day with him and with our team to work through some of these issues. We are not taking it lightly, but it's extraordinarily complicated, much more complicated than it was in March. Just for those at home, UI is unemployed employment insurance. I would say that I'm a little bit surprised by the failure of of the safety net. And that's probably like a too high level way to say it. But I look at those lines of people waiting for food. I look at the numbers of kids. I sit on the board of Covenant House that serves homeless youth. They've never served more kids than they're serving right now. And I just sort of feel like it feels to me, again, I think a lot of people would expect the federal government to have stepped in here and to have provided more money and to re-up it. It's clear that, in my view, I don't think they're going to either. Or even if they do, it will be, it's not going to be enough to get us through next November. And so what do we do about this? I mean, this feels to me just like of paramount importance that we sort of assume that there is some safety net for people to have food on their table. This is a conversation Melissa and I have been having for decades with one another, but the social insurance system in the United States was built on the idea that the first line of defense is the family. That is still the case. However, we also have a social insurance system that was built on the fact that there is also a family issue, which is there's a primary breadwinner and then there's a secondary person who could either go into the workforce or not. And we do not have that family structure anymore. And then we also built it on the fact that there was just kind of people who would be at the same job for years and years and they would pay into unemployment and it would work really really smoothly. And that's not happening. And then the fifth thing I would say is that in California, and this was not like other states, we were at the lowest unemployment in the state's history in February of last year, under 2% or around 2%. And we then spiked up so high. So if you can imagine stress testing a system that had very few employees, very few ability to get this money out the door. So we suddenly had to hire hundreds of people, had a technology system that was stress tested, and it didn't go well. I mean, you can read it in the paper. It did not go well. We did get billions of dollars out the door. We got millions of people who received assistance, but there were also people who didn't get phone calls back, who were desperate to get information and it didn't. And so 
I think if this taught us anything is that we have a tremendous amount of work to do to ensure that we actually have a real social safety net that works for everybody. And that's true. And it's going to take federal state partnerships and it's going to take real money. I and mean, we need infrastructure money to deal with some of the digital and technology problems that we have, where we have literally, there's a guy in, in Hawaii, he's the only guy who knows how to fix our unemployment insurance system. Like this is bad. So we have some work to do on that. That guy too. is sitting in his home in Hawaii, stroking a hairless cat right now, <laughs> knowing that he holds the keys to your whole castle. That's yeah, very sad. Part of it is that we don't pay enough to keep people in these jobs. Yes. I deal with this a lot in police data, like people come in and out because they make a lot more money in the private sector doing other things. But it is yeah. it's such a failing when, when things like this happen. And when you think about just getting back to the vaccine part, the only way we get to normal is some sort of verification and compliance. That's going to be hard. And whether we want to go mandatory, I think it's likely the thing you're going to see is the private sector begins to make it mandatory. States like yours will make it more difficult to be out in society unless you're vaccinated. People are not prepared. Like We are going to have the equivalent of identification for some period of time where you cannot go into a movie theater, you cannot get onto an airplane. And that data management is going to just be an additional one for a state like yours with so many health and data compliance issues. Yeah. I mean, there's everything from the technology to make that work to the privacy issues to the, you know, real questions that people have. I mean, one of the things we did in California and New York has done it as well is to say that we are going to actually do a double take to make sure that we are very certain about this vaccine before we promote it. We wanted to have an advisory board take a second look at it because this did happen faster than it ever has before. Is it really safe? Can we confidently say it? So there's a lot of work to do on all those fronts. When are those folks going to be done? Like if, let's say, say the FDA here, so we're going to get both decisions sometime in December. Are you on the same time frame? Yeah. And the, they, they will do very quickly. And once they get that, they'll be using the same information. So they won't be doing the, a new review. So it's just a, making sure that they are reviewing everything that's come out. Uh, so we expect it to go smoothly. But I think it will be important for us to say we also had our experts review it really carefully. One other question that, I mean, I think Melissa and I probably, it's one of the things she and I probably talk about the most together is schools and kids. It's impacting all of us in really difficult ways, but like, and Juliet has kids who are, I think, just a little bit older, but it's really hard. Our son this week is in remote school and he's six. And so one of us is sitting there and it just feels to me like, particularly if we're honest about how long we will be in this. And I think we all have to be and just sort of reset the time frame. Like, it's amazing we have a vaccine, but it's not like we're going to flip a switch tomorrow. How do we get schools back? And sort of, what are you thinking about? It just, it feels to me like we're going to look back on this as just an abject failure for our children if we don't figure out how to do it differently than we're doing it. And it's like, I feel like I'm watching it in slow motion with my own child. And it's really, it's just, you know, it's heart wrenching for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I do think that we are looking really carefully at what Europe did. There's a lot of good science saying that we can safely open schools. We think that from a perspective of just incredible inequities and the learning loss that's occurring with already disadvantaged students, that we just cannot morally keep schools closed continuing into 2021. And so we are doing everything we can. But we also need to make sure that the people who are at risk are, are unlikely to be the children, but they are the adults in the school. They are the teachers. They are the 
janitors. They are the administrators. And it, it can't be taken lightly that these are people, often some some of whom are often, you know, older, they have health issues, they're not paid a lot of money, and we're putting them at, so we just need to make sure we get that right. We're working very hard at it. I do think that the Biden administration, Trump also, his health people were not wrong. Like, we have to figure out how to help schools. It was hard to listen to that because of all the other stuff that was happening with them. But I think with Biden, people will have more certainty that it's being based on science and health. And hopefully there can be some national guidance, which I think would be tremendously helpful. Quick question about schools. Like, once we are out of this, is there any sort of proposal looking down the road to sort of level out some of these inequities that have been exacerbated because of COVID, whether it's year-round school or putting more resources in school to address those kids who were really underserved during this period? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we have to do that. I mean, I think Melissa and I are uh, neighbors in Oakland, and I think that um, the fact of the matter is that it's not just the inequities with regard to children who don't have family support at home, but it's also inequity in the other direction. I mean, my kids are being taught by their dad, who's a California Supreme Court justice, and has a. Is, I think my kids' learning has gone through the roof in terms of wonderfulness of being able to spend time with their highly educated dad uh, during this period of time. I'm so. sending my kid to your house. Yeah, is he available? He like a great homeschool teacher. Yeah, can you please do that? Because he's doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, my my husband is also a judge and I'm not experiencing this phenomenon. <laughs> it's going to be challenging and we have real work to do to make up these inequities for sure. But thank you all for having me today. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Anne. Good You're luck amazing. With everything. Good luck. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us. And I really hope you can come back to speak with us on some other topics or how the vaccination distribution is going in California. Talking Feds, Woman at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett. Our associate producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Our production assistant is Matt McCardle. Our audio engineer is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. And as always, thanks to the amazing Philip Glass for letting us use his music. Talking Feds, Woman at the Table is a production of Delito LLC, and we'll see you all next time. 